this morning going to continue our series in the Psalms. And when people hear that I'm preaching through the Psalms, they say, what? I've never heard anyone preach through the Psalms, um, let alone teach through the Psalms. This has been such a great exercise for me to study and learn the hymnal of the Bible. And that hopefully as we go through the Messianic Psalms, the Psalms that point to the Messiah, that exalt Christ as the Son of God, the anointed coming King, that we would see that the Old Testament is not an archaic book for the nation of Israel, but it is living, active, God-word, God-breathed for our life today. So this is what Spurgeon would call the Psalm of the Cross. It's exactly what it is. I've titled it The Afflicted One because it goes into great detail, a first-person perspective of Christ's affliction on the cross. And we think we're familiar with crucifixion. We've seen the movies. We've heard the Sunday school stories. We've went through countless Easter services. What was crucifixion? Crucifixion was the worst form of torturous punishment the world has ever known. It was begun by warlords who would take captives, they would torture them, put them in a box, poke them with swords over and over and over again, and then put them on display, the battlements. The word we get for, for cross is literally a wooden beam. So they would build these wooden fortresses. When the enemies would approach, the captives they took would be the first thing they saw. So these bodies would be on display. It was meant to intimidate and humiliate. Now, the cross has kind of become cute in our culture. People wear it, don't understand it. Tattoos, bumper stickers. It's not a cute thing. You know, it's the worst physical agony a person can endure and the most humiliating thing that they can endure as well. Because it wasn't modest like we see in the movies. You know, many times the movies, they sensationalize things. They make things worse than they really are. But the crucifixions we see in the movies are actually toned down. Jesus would have been naked on full display, every bit of himself to be mocked, to be derided, and to be humiliated before man. Jesus left heaven, left the security of the Father, the perfect fellowship that existed throughout all time to come down to our world, to culminate in the cross. Not as plan B or C, because he didn't foresee our sin, but as plan A. Jesus took the worst the world had to offer and took it bravely and boldly. And this psalm, you wonder, okay, how could David see this? How could David write about this? David wrote this a thousand years before crucifixion was even invented. Almost 1,500 years before Christ himself would be crucified. And yet David felt the pain and the agony and the, 
and the, the confliction that went back and forth in Jesus' heart, which we're going to see this morning. Ever wondered what was Jesus thinking on the cross? What was he feeling? What were his uh, emotions? Because we, we know he was fully human. He experienced everything we did short of sin. So what was he feeling on the cross? This morning we're going to see that in Psalm 22. Now David wrote shadows of those feelings, and he prophesied ahead to Christ. So I'm going to read through this text this morning. We're going to pray. We're going to walk through this powerful psalm. And I want you to see the brilliance in the writing of this psalm and the intentionality of what is portrayed here. Psalm 22, starting in verse 1. May God bless the reading of his word. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me, and they make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from my womb. You made me trust in you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. The strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a raving and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaw. And you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. Company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat after me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he has cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship 
belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all before all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Prosperity shall serve him. It shall be told to the Lord, to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Amen. Let's pray. We could just close the book and go home. That is our gospel right there. The son, the perfect one who trusted in the Lord from his mother's womb, kept the law perfectly, went through anguish and affliction for the sake of sinners so that he could rise from the grave and proclaim the truth of the coming kingdom, the praise and worship and glory of his Father, he has done it, that it is finished. This is the truth the world needs to hear. We can move apart any psychological advice, any human wisdom, any surface instruction. This is the core of what ails the world and what ails every human heart. And I hope this morning that it is so clear who our God is, who our Savior is, and what we proclaim. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as you see in your outline before you, normally I have kind of a basic outline. But after studying this psalm, the structure is so complex. This is actually and should be two sermons. So over the next two hours, we're going to go through, should have seen some of your faces. <laughs> I'm going to try to get this into one sermon, I promise. But we see the first half, this back and forth, the contrast that the afflicted one is enduring. And we see the second half, the proclamation, the preacher arises and proclaims the one who's been rescued. But I hope you'll see the intimate nature of these contrasts. There's not a hint of blame. There's not a hint of worry. There's not a hint of doubt that God is not still God. The contrasts are there. And they reflect the contrast that exists within the human experience. So this first half is a prayer. It's a prayer from the cross. And it's a pattern of what our prayer should look like. Pouring, our, pouring out our hearts before God. Recognizing our frailty and His holiness. First line, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We've all seen that in Easter plays and movies. How many of us have felt that way? How many of us have cried out to God in instances in our lives, the situations don't make sense. The prayers seem unanswered. The world, the bulls, the oxen, the lions, the dogs surround us and we cry out to God. But he seems so far. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, I find no rest. We can identify with that. 
And if anyone has the right to feel that way, it was the afflicted one. Christ on the cross kept the law perfectly, walked sinless, trusted in the Lord before he took his first breath. Jesus himself made that connection to this passage as he's on the cross. He wanted the world to know when you go back and you look at Psalm 22, I am fulfilling this before your very eyes. He knew God didn't forsake him. He pointed to this psalm to show that he clearly trusted God. I want you to turn with me to Matthew 27. Matthew 27 alone has four references to Psalm 22. We're going to start reading in verse 35 and read to verse 36. But I want you to read this with new eyes. Imagine you're a Jew in the first century. You had memorized these psalms growing up. You had sung them as part of your worship in the temple. And Jesus starts as he's about to expire by pointing us to this psalm. As everything that's surrounding this psalm is coming to pass. Matthew 27 starting in verse 35. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments again them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put this charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. If he desires him, For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. So Jesus, on the cross, references Psalm 22, the first shout of anguish to the first contrast. But he doesn't leave it there. We see the divide transition into the holy God. We know those transition words are so important. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet, you are holy. Enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. Jesus did not remain in his anguish. He always looked to the Father's glory. He made the connection that his fathers made. That when my fathers cried out, you were faithful. You delivered them. When I cry out, I know you will be faithful. You will deliver me. 
in our affliction, let us remember who our God is, what kind of God we serve. Our God is faithful. Our God is holy. Our God is worthy of our praise and trust. And he is the rescuer of the afflicted. This isn't blind trust, blind faith like the world likes to accuse us of. It is a faith built solidly. And it is what he has done for his people because our God is trustworthy. Our God is trustworthy. Amen? But before a trustworthy God hanging on a cross, being mocked by men, you feel like a worm and not a man. Verse 6, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads saying, he trusts in the Lord. You can hear the, just the mocking nature of it. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. You remember his people shouted, crucify him, crucify him. The the soldiers and the onlookers mocked him. And then worst of all, they mocked him for delighting in the Lord. They wanted to make themselves feel righteous by mocking the one who walked faithfully before his faithful God. So when they say, your God can't rescue you, and that's what they're saying, you're not the son of God, you're not the king of Israel, otherwise God would have rescued you. They're looking for a circumstantial rescue. To understand the nature of rescue, you need to understand what you need to be rescued from. If you're caught in a burning building, you hope a fireman comes and pulls you out. If you're kidnapped or you're caught in the middle of an armed robbery, you hope the police will show up and bring you, rescue you out of that situation. You hope if you get invaded that the army will come and protect you. But if you're in the edge of death, nailed to a cross, with the power of the greatest army that world had ever known, the Roman Empire, you're not looking for a human solution. You're looking for a divine rescuer. You need a God who can bring dead men to life. So when they mock him, what does he do? Transition again. Yet you, saying God, talking to the Father, you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust in you at my mother's breast. On you was I called from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. He trusts in the Lord. He's being mocked. He's being tortured. From conception, from his incarnation, his God and his faith was sure. Be not far from me. You think about that. It's a a strange request. Most of us would be like, get me off of here. Take me down from here. But he said, be not far from me. His concern was not for the pain or the mockery, but his concern was for the closeness of the father. We sing those words, the father turned his face away. I'll take the cross, but don't be far from me. What a lesson for us. 
when we hurt, when we feel alone, we need to remember that when we pray for the cup to be removed, sometimes it will. When Jesus prayed for the cup to be removed, it wasn't. Our concern should not be for the removal of the cup, the removal of the pain, the ceasing of the mockery, but for the closeness of the Father in the midst of it. To draw close to our Father, to feel his presence in the midst of trouble, because he is our true relief. And you need that relief because it's about to get worse. We see this next contrast here in verse 12. This is the, the heart of the people surrounding him. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. The bulls of Bashan. What does that mean to us? Well, Bashan was the area that was most fertile. They had the greenest grass. They had the biggest crops. And those of us who've been around animals and you've seen the way bulls are raised, if they get green grass and they get a supple diet, they're going to get big and strong. The bulls of Bashan were the biggest, strongest, meanest bulls in that region. You were afraid of those bulls. So the people that are surrounding him, Jesus knew that there was this spiritual evil. These bulls who were snorting and staring him down, wanting him to be defeated. Those were the bulls that surrounded him like roaring lions. And then verses 14 to 18 go over the, the physical aspects. It gives us this clear picture of if you're standing on the cross, if you're Christ with your arms locked to those, to those beams, what are you seeing in front of you? Verse 14, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint, but none broken. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws like mine's doing right now. You lay me in the dust of death for dogs encompass me. Company of evildoers surrounds me. They've pierced my hands and feet and feet. They count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and my clothes. They cast lots. This is a miserable scene. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. One of the most famous messianic passages in all of scripture is Isaiah 53. I want you to turn there with me. Isaiah comments on the same exact scenario. What is happening right here on the cross? David saw it and prophesied toward it. The gospel writers witnessed it and wrote about it. But Isaiah, Isaiah 53, gives us the purpose Isaiah 53, I'm going to start reading in verse 10 and read through verse 12. What's the first line here? Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Remember, this was not plan A or plan B. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. God is not absent from this picture. Verse 11, out of the anguish of the soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, 
make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Why did he do it? To make many righteous and to bear their iniquities. Verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. We're going to talk about that in the second half of this passage. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death. He was numbered with the transgressors. This is what we need to make sure we get. Do not miss this. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The Lord's will to crush him for us, the transgressors, for the sins of those who will trust in him. Sobering. It's not something we gloss over easily. And this is not the gospel of our world today. The gospel of our world today is Jesus loves you right where you are. Do whatever you want. Try to do more good than bad. It's what every other religion tells us. No. Salvation costs everything. It costs Christ everything. And if we are to be counted with him, it will cost us everything. Verse 19. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. He says it again. Do not be far from me. He recognizes. Sorry, we're back in Psalm 22. He recognizes where his strength comes from, where his comfort is. The father, do not be far off. O you, my help. Come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. We're not talking about Fluffy here. This isn't Fido. We didn't start domesticating animals until a couple hundred years ago. Back then, dogs were scavengers. They were like vultures. When something was about to die, they would encircle it to devour it. Those were the dogs that were encircling him. Save me from the mouth of the lion. The lion is Satan who Peter tells us is like a roaring lion who's walking the earth, seeking to devour. But what does he say in the second half of verse 24? Everything turns here. If you read this in Hebrew, this would be a shout. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. This in Hebrew Literally means you have heard me. You have heard my cry. You have rescued me. We see that he goes into the dust. In verse 15. In verse 21. He's rescued. The affliction turns into deliverance. This is the climax. The pinnacle of this entire passage. I was tempted to have you guys close your eyes when I read this passage the first time and to just feel the affliction and the heartache and the brokenness that is going on on the cross. And you can open your eyes at the moment of rescue. Again, to understand the nature of the rescue, the rescuee. We also need to understand the nature of the rescuer. Because we need the same rescue. If you are in Christ, 
you trust in him for your salvation, you have experienced this rescue. Because his affliction was our affliction. Remember what Isaiah told us, he bore the sins of many. The unbearable weight of the sins, the world, and the hatred of man and all of creation, Jesus bore that affliction. The affliction we deserved. The rescue we needed. The same rescue for the Son is promised to those who fear the Lord. Like he'll tell us in just a couple verses. Hebrews 5, 7 tells us that he was heard because of his reverence. With loud cries and tears, he cried out to the Lord. And Father heard his prayer. You have rescued me. You have heard me. Does your sin make you cry out with tears? Does your deliverance make you respond in praise? Because that's exactly what the afflicted one does here. The afflicted one is rescued and he's turned into the preacher. I've been rescued. Now I'm going to proclaim the truth of what's been done for me. This is the transition of every preacher. Because I once was the afflicted bearing my weight of sin. I was this ugly, rebellious sinner before my God and I've been rescued. It's also the same transition of every believer. You turn from the afflicted to the rescued and to the proclaimer. What did Jesus do in verse 22? I will tell of your name to my brothers. The first thing he did after he's rescued is I'm going to tell. Not worried about myself. In the first half, he's worried about his connection to the Father. In the second half, he's worried about his brothers. You are rescued so that you can proclaim who rescued you. How do you remember someone who saved your life? Blood transfusion, kidney, a doctor, pulling you from a burning building. How do you respond to someone who saves your life? Tell of what they've done. You celebrate that. You know, tomorrow's the 4th of July. You celebrate being free. Celebrate being in a nation where it didn't come for nothing. People died to rescue us from tyranny. But how many celebrating this, this weekend reflect on that? Just hot dogs and beer. We attend church call ourselves Christians because Jesus died to rescue us from the tyranny of sin and the misery of the sin in our lives. How many people in church today reflect on that? Or is it just checking off a box, sitting in a pew? You know, I have no desire at all to be reunited with England, especially with what's going on over there these days. (laughs) But I'm under no delusion that my freedom as a U.S. citizen truly makes me free. If this psalm shows us anything, is that true independence is dependence on the Father. True freedom is not being the God of our own kingdom, free to do whatever reckless thing we want. True independence is dependence on God. Christ feared 
and trusted his God. He never doubted the holiness and the communion he had with the Father. That's why we take communion. When we take communion today, it's appropriate as small as the 4th of July because the communion we take is the cost of freedom. The freedom was purchased the very body and blood of our Savior on the cross. Communion is not just another ritual of the church. It is sharing in the life and death of our Savior. So once we've got that down, now comes the proclamation. The whole psalm shifts to Psalm to verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. This is the result and the response to the rescue. The result and the response for the rescue. I want you to see that verses 22 through 26, this is the model for preaching. This is it. Proclaim the truth. Proclaim it to the brothers. Proclaim it to the congregation. Verses 27 through 31, this is the model for missions. All the ends of the earth shall remember. He has done it. What is the verse I've been telling you guys over and over and over and over? Psalm 96.2. I can't escape it. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. That's who we're to be as a church. Because when Christ was rescued, the first thing he wanted to do was tell of that salvation. When we proclaim the gospel, we are telling of Jesus. He is the word. We are telling of him. And we are following his example in words and actions. Ephesians 2, 17 and 18 shows him as the preacher. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Whenever we tell of him, whenever we tell of our Savior, it is him they hear. Him who is glorified. Him who speaks for us. When they receive the gospel, it is him they receive. When they reject the gospel, it is him they reject. Not us. When I stand before you this morning, hopefully, faithfully proclaim the gospel, it is Christ who you hear. And the Holy Spirit who guides me and teaches you. So as we recognize our rescue, the nature of our rescuer. When we proclaim the gospel, it is not in our own strength. It is not in our own accomplishment. The preacher does not proclaim his own deeds. This is never, I have done this. I have saved myself. It is always you. You, God. You, the Father. That is our cry. That is our proclamation. Verse 22 He tells his brothers. His first thought is his brothers. He's not thinking of himself. First he thinks of the Lord in the first half. and the second half he's thinking of the congregation. What did Jesus tell us? Love the Lord with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. And your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is exemplifying this here in this passage. Love the Lord in the affliction. Love your neighbor in the proclamation. That is the Christian life. 
Who are his brothers? Who did Jesus say his brothers were? Or his mother? Or his sisters? Those who keep my commandments. Those who fear the Lord. There's a progression here that we don't have time to get into, but I want you to see this. First, it goes to the brothers. It is Israel. Jesus said, I came for the lost sheep of Israel. I come for my brothers of Israel first. Not only, but first. The the word congregation that you see here is the same word for assembly and the same word for church. He came for the church of Israel, the true church. Those who are sons of Abraham by faith. But it doesn't just stop at Israel. It goes from the church of Israel to verse 25, the great congregation. The church of all saints, the great congregation outside of Israel. And it goes even further. Verse 27, to the ends of the earth. I am drawing a people to myself from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And if you can take it a step further, the end, he says, I will proclaim this to a coming generation, a people yet unborn. Not just people in Jesus' time or even his disciples' scope. It was the people unborn. All of the lost sheep. The shepherd comes to gather to himself, even those yet unborn. That is the gospel. I want you to see something very, very important here. Because there's a caveat to this. So he tells, unfolds this story of the gospel going out from Israel to all the nations, to all who will yet be unborn. But what is the requirement for that? Verse 23, you who fear the Lord, praise him. The ones who he died for, they fear the Lord. The rest of this passage applies to them. It's those, if you go into verse 26, um, Those who seek him. Those who fear the Lord. Those who turn, who turn to the Lord. Over and over and over again in this passage, he's coming for those who fear the Lord. For those who seek him. For those who turn from the world. This simple message of the gospel. Repent and believe. It was no different then. It's no different now. So when he shows us in verse 20, where are we here? Verse 27, to turn to the Lord. It's what the word repentance means. It means to turn from the things of the world and turn to the Lord. Repent. And what does repentance result in? Same verse 27, worshiping before you. Repent and believe. The gospel is proclaimed in Psalm 22. That's the job of the preacher. That's the job of the missionary to go to all the nations and say, repent and believe. Turn to the Lord. Salvation is only in the Lord. This verse is quoted. The earlier verse verse is quoted directly in Hebrews chapter two. I want to read that very quickly. Hebrews chapter two. Um, at verse 10, if you can turn there with me, go ahead. But I want to read it rather quickly. There's a few minutes left. Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 10, and read through verse 12. For it's fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing bring many sons to glory, 
should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who sanctify all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. That's the foundation of the gospel. We have one source. This is not Christ's story apart from us. This is Christ's story for us. He died so that we might be brothers. We've talked about this before when we're in Galatians. Women don't think of brothers as, as sisters being less. A brother is an heir, equal. There's no distinction. There is no male, female. We are co-heirs with Christ. We are brothers standing side by side with an eternal inheritance. Male or female is only something we debate about in the news. But before God, we are sons. We are heirs. He, Christ, called us brothers. Not just Israel, but all who fear him, all who seek him. Jesus rose from the dead to be a witness to us as we are a witness of him. And the culmination of this entire passage, verse 31, they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. He being God. If anyone tries to sell a salvation that is short of he has done it, is short of God has done it, is a different salvation, is a different God. In the Hebrew, this could just as easily be translated, it is finished. In the Hebrew, there is no he here. And when you, when you translate, sometimes it gets difficult trying to get the, the true essence of this. Not that he has done it is not an accurate translation, but when Jesus said it is finished, he's also referencing this psalm. He has done it. God has delivered So if that's our proclamation, if that's our cry, how do we conclude this morning? What should we know? What should we take away from this psalm? First of all, what Jesus went through. This is not light. This is not easy. It's not just, oh, it's the cross. We saw the anguish. We saw the affliction. What Jesus went through. How He was conflicted and afflicted, yet he was vindicated and rescued. Why? For us. Because why? Because God, our God is holy, our God is faithful, our God is just, our God is the rescuer of the afflicted. And in our culture, too many times, we're the good guys. We pat each other on the back. We want self-esteem. Jesus wanted God-esteem. He wasn't exalting himself. He wasn't exalting man. He was exalting God. Because God is the rescuer. We, the afflicted, we are the ones who deserve to be on that cross. When we proclaim the gospel, that's what we proclaim. Because God is the rescuer of those who cry out to him. The same God who sent his son down to earth to die the death we deserved, who rescued his son from the worst man had to offer and his own wrath has rescued us from the worst the world has to offer. And if we turn from the world and trust in him, 
praise him as Lord, we can proclaim that salvation to the nations boldly. It's not our salvation. It's not our strength. Rescue that understands the nature of the rescue leads to proclamation. Jesus proclaimed, and so should we. So when Paul wrote his letters to the churches, especially the one in Corinth that was so mixed in with the world, he told them, I want to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It is only because Christ went to the cross for us that we can praise and we can celebrate because the cry of the believer is it is finished. Let us pray. Lord, what an awesome, just gut-wrenching reminder of what you went through for us. When Adam sinned, we sinned. And every day we sin and we are deserving of what you went through. But you are holy, you are merciful, you are loving, you are righteous, and you rescued us. Those who come before you humbly, who cry out to you, my God, my God, you hear our prayers. And Lord, as we speak to people about the rescue that we've experienced, may we not forget that. May this not be a quiet gospel. May this not be a suggestion, but a proclamation, Lord, of what you have done and who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.